0: Welcome to Episode 5 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Victoria Weston, resident at Northwestern University, An immediate past president of RSA speaks with Dr. Robert McNamara, Chair at Temple University, and a past president and founding member of AAEM. Today, Dr. Weston and Dr. McNamara will discuss corporate practice of emergency medicine and the current issues that surround this topic. Hello
1: and thank you for joining us on the RSA podcast. My name is Vicky Weston. I am the immediate past president of RSA. And with us today, we are very fortunate to have Dr. McNamara, who is professor and chair at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Temple University. He is also a founder of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine and served as president from 1996 to 2002. Um, he also currently serves as the chief medical officer for the AAEM Physician Group. He has so much experience and knowledge about the corporate practice of medicine and some of the issues it's posed to our field. And we're very, very fortunate to have him here today to talk with us about this topic. So, Dr. McNamara, thank you for being here with us today.
2: Pleasure to be here.
1: So, I think for a lot of residents and students, they may or may not learn about this as much depending on where they attend their residency training. What should residents and students know about the corporate practice of emergency medicine?
2: The basic definition is when you're working at a site where there's lay ownership of the emergency department contract. And essentially, this means that you are ultimately working for corporation, a lay entity, you're not working for physicians, and it can radically change your professional practice. One of the things is that a lot of the jobs out there, uh, you don't really know what you're getting into as a resident in many circumstances, so you do need to be informed about this and to realize there's a lot of different options and there's some traps, some problem issues. AAM started with a book called The Rape of Emergency Medicine, and that is essentially a reflection on the corporate practice of medicine, where contracts are held by small number of individuals, and the essential goal is to make money off of the practicing doc. Money is at the, at the bottom of all this. It's control of the emergency physician professional fee. You're going through your residency. This is your apprenticeship. You're not being paid a lot, but you're learning the trade. And the goal is when you finish, you can go out and bill for professional services. That's going to come in a couple different forms. You're probably already familiar with it if you're like a second- or third-year resident the E and M code. Like I want a level five chart for an admitted patient where you have to put enough information. And then there's a fee that's attached to that that you would get paid. And that's for your professional efforts. Documenting procedure. When you do an intubation, you document that, you get paid for that. And that's it. That's how you make your money as an emergency physician. There are some other ways where, you know, the payments come to the hospital and they split them with the docs. Critical care time is another one that's important. But essentially Your whole thing, everything, college, med school, residency, is so you as a professional can charge for your services. That's the end result of training. So when you finish, you are entitled to that fee. The patient, the insurance company, thinks that's going to you. With the corporate practice of emergency medicine, that's not actually the case, that you're being paid a portion of that, and that can create a financial issue. Now, beyond that, there's all the business influence issues that happen when a corporation runs an emergency department. I wrote an article, which you can get out of the uh, AM website, called Give a Shift a Week to the Company, an analysis of the Team Health IPO in 2009. And what it basically said, if you look at what they have to file with the Security Exchange Commission, this is a publicly available document, you look at the amount of money Team Health brings in from emergency physicians... You take away what they pay the doctors, what they pay the physician assistants, the nurse practitioners, professional service expenses. You take away what's billing, collection, and coding, and malpractice costs. There's a 22% profit level. Every doctor, 22% of the money they bring us is going to profit after those expenses. Well, what other expenses are there in emergency medicine besides what you pay the providers, billing and collection, and malpractice? We're not buying equipment. You come in, Your own equipment, you come in with your stethoscope. That's pretty much it, running the practice. Now, you know, you have to pay somebody to do your schedule, that kind of stuff. The benefits, you're an independent contractor, so they're not giving you health care. You're getting that on your own. So that's why I totaled the article, give a shift a week to the company. 22%, five, eight-hour shifts. You're giving up a shift each week. So that's a huge amount of money for these companies. They are making... If they're in a good payer mix emergency department, that's going to be millions of dollars of profit to the company, and they need to protect that profit stream. So that puts you in a difficult situation as a physician. If you complain about staffing levels or nursing staffing levels or this new mandate that we have to see every patient within 15 minutes, you complain about this stuff, your hospital administration gets wind of it, and then the company gets wind of it, you can be threatened with your job. Unfortunately, we've done surveys and we've published papers. I published one in the, the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2013 where emergency physicians feel threatened when they speak up about the quality of care, 20% of emergency physicians, because you're saying things aren't running well and a corporation holds the contract, MCare, care, team health, whatever. They're saying, hey, wait a second. If we lose this contract, we lose that profit stream. So that is a huge danger. You need to know when you're working for a lay entity they're taking some money out of your pocket, and they could do things to keep you from actually acting on behalf of the patients because it's not good for the business. Hospital administration gets power over the emergency physician via these contracts. The typical contract says you can be terminated without cause, so they can threaten you with your job. It's like, hey, you're going to toe the line here. You're going to do this. Hospital administration wants it. Uh, otherwise, we will just fire you. So it's a scary It's a scary issue.
1: It certainly is. As a new grad myself, it's a scary practice environment to be entering into and starting off. And I think if you're not careful, you really could end up in a tough spot or maybe signing a contract that really doesn't give you a lot of rights, from what I understand. I think on that vein of thought, and you're talking about Team Health and Care and other organizations like that, let's say you're a new graduate looking for a job. What are some of the dangers that you would face or potential problems you would face if you took a contract with one of those companies?
2: Well, you'll see it at some point if you're looking for a job. You will get a contract, and you absolutely should have your contract reviewed by somebody with a legal mind. Typically, what I do for my residents is I review them all, and then I tell them what they should ask the lawyer about. The typical corporate contract says you can be terminated without due process, without rights to a hearing on the medical staff. That's pretty much standard operating procedure. So if you do raise a quality of care issue, if you do complain, you know, inadequate nursing staff, you know, we need more equipment, this or that, you're potentially at risk. We've heard situations where the nurses know they can get you fired by complaining, by writing you up, and then you're on thin ice. The whole control of the emergency department is the physician's the most vulnerable person there. The financial issues, I think one of the issues, residents have a lot of debt. Um, What you have to look at is should I just chase the highest paid job or should I chase the job where I'm going to feel that I'm fairly rewarded? When I'm working, I'm getting fair compensation for what I'm doing. So I work in a poor paramix inner city hospital. All my docs could go out in the community and make more money. But they know nobody's ripping them off because we're serving Medicaid patients, uninsured patients. So they feel fairly compensated. Even though they could make more money elsewhere, they know that the numbers just aren't there. However, you take a job for one of these companies and you eventually figure out that I'm losing 22%. You're doing a difficult job, which is emergency medicine. You're doing nights, weekends, holidays. You're taking care of people found on the street, drug abuse, violence. It's a difficult job, and if you feel like you're getting exploited, you're not going to be able to survive. To me, that's one of the less spoken about issues with the high burnout rate being reported by emergency physicians. We have our baseline difficult job. Being a doctor is hard. I mean, even 38% of dermatologists are burned out. Like, how can you be burned out as a dermatologist? So medicine is stressful you got people's lives in your hands. You're dealing with things. It's knowledge. There's all kinds of stresses inherent to medicine and to emergency medicine. But why are we the highest, in you know, which is a specialty where it's really, in its purest form, a great specialty? I think a big chunk of it is, is that we feel like a cog in the wheel, a commodity. We're there to make money for the company. They watch your patients per hour. They watch your RVUs per hour. They drive you to chart, to document it. And it's all, I'm just churning to make money, and then they're taking it out of my pocket. And if that creeps into your practice and you feel that way, it's hard to feel good at two o'clock in the morning taking care of a patient who you think somebody's ripping you off for. So it, that's a danger. I really feel you need to look for positions where you're going to feel fairly compensated. One thing that's lacking in emergency medicine people say, well, so what do you want to do about the issue? well, we're doing things like with the AM Physician Group we can talk about later, but if I could do one thing in emergency medicine, I would have every physician see what is billed and paid in their name. And then the game would end because doctors would say, oh, wait a second, this much revenue came in under my professional efforts, my labors at 2 o'clock in the morning. Why is this much going there, this and there? Technically, we're supposed to see that. The federal government expects you to be, the check on honest billings. You attest to the fact that these billings are honest. So that simple statement of most emergency physicians don't get to see what's building paid their name is symbolic of the problem in our specialty. You're supposed to see it. The government expects you to see it. You're at risk if you don't see it, yet you can't see it, and if you ask for it, you can be fired. That's the whole the money issue, the whole game. And you're in the dark. And without transparency, you start thinking about things and like, am I getting paid enough? I I got my kids now or college tuition bill, like, oh my goodness, it costs more than my medical school costs. And you're going to start saying, am I getting ripped off? So that's why I'm involved with the academy, why I'm involved with trying to preserve physician ownership. I think it's a big factor in burnout.
1: You know, I think something else that was very memorable when I was learning about this for for the first time is how some people have been unfairly fired for bringing up patient safety issues and then with restrictive covenants and being unable to practice near where they were previously employed. I know people often come to the academy with questions and problems related to this. Just to put a personal face to this, are there any stories from physicians that stand out to you or that you can recall who were affected in this way?
2: Too many, unfortunately. And I have served as a unpaid expert in a couple of due process matters for doctors across the country. Doctors getting fired for reporting an administrator for sexually harassing somebody. Doctors getting fired for raising quality of care issues. I mean, I don't know if people are familiar. You can look at the Wanda Cruz case, which is, you know, active right now. A young doctor who just honestly stated inadequate staffing and gets back to MKR and boom, she's gone. Doctors fired for arguing for patient safety. It's incredible that this could happen. You would think that your first duty is to the patient, and speaking out on behalf of the patient can get you terminated in the specialty of emergency medicine. The public would be incensed with that. I'm incensed with that, of course. I think we all should be. Know the 60 Minutes show was just a couple years ago with Steve Croft, the cost of admission. Google that, you know, 60 Minutes cost of admission, and see what was happening via HMA, and M care where these doctors were being told you have to admit a patient to a quota. Somebody comes up at the age sixty five, you n- need to admit this percentage. And if you don't do it, we're gonna threaten you with your job. And the directors who said, We don't want to do that. That's not right. You can't tell a doctor to admit to a quota, threaten with their job, and fired and terminate. Like that's insane. If your grandmother went into the hospital and didn't need to be admitted, yet they were admitted because there was a quota and they got a hospital acquired infection or started to sundown. All in the name of profit? That is just absolutely insane that our specialty, that this has been foisted upon us through this corporate influence. It was MCARE who had that hammer of we can terminate you at any moment. And that's just a very disturbing story. And at AM, we've heard this time and time again for reasons that are just you don't think could occur in a profession. The problem is we sold the profession out, and we don't control our practices.
1: And I think it's really valuable to think about all these issues, and these are all great resources if you want to go look them up after this podcast, but to think about being a new physician out in practice and being told that you can't staff appropriately even when there's a surge, or that you may lose your job if you bring that attention when it's a patient safety issue, or that you're being told to unethically admit people just because they happen to have good insurance. It would be a very challenging position for anyone to be in, and it's certainly unethical and troubling. Unfortunately, many of our colleagues are in these sorts of situations as residents, it's very important for us to be aware of this. So both as we go forward and inherit these issues, as we graduate from our training, and as we look for jobs, I guess some to kind of take a step back, how did we get here? How did this happen? You did mention that, you know, we've sort of things have been sold out over time.
2: Well, if you haven't read The Rape of Emergency Medicine, you can get it for free on the AM website. It's a decent book. It's, you know, not the best writing, but it's a quick read. It essentially does take you back to the history I mean, essentially, at the root of this was physicians who realized that they could make money by having other physicians fill in shifts. Literally, in the book, they basically describe the early start of making money off your colleague. A resident who's moonlighting, getting paid X amount per hour, the hospital minister says, if you can get some of your colleagues to work for me, I'll give you 5 bucks an hour while they're filling the shift. So you don't even have to work. You're getting passive income. And it, it quickly became apparent that staffing emergency departments was a headache, that the trends of medicine were the ED was rarely used in the 1930s, 1940s, and then as technology started to concentrate in the hospitals, we saw huge increases in ED visits, and there were problems staffing them. So if you're a hospital administrator, you want a solution where somebody's going to say, I know you have needed doc here 24-7. I'll provide that for you. And entrepreneur individuals basically said, I'm going to hire other doctors to work in these contracts, and for every hour they work, I'm going to make some money. And it grew into the situation where it became much more sophisticated. The quote-unquote early leaders of the specialty are the ones that actually started us on this pathway. Now, the original founders of the American College of Emergency Physicians were all about private practice, treating one another fairly, being in group practice. The, The original bylaws of the college actually said you won't make money off another physician. That's no longer there. It actually said, you might talk about the Summa situation, that you won't steal somebody else's contract. That's what the original bylaws, written in 1968, well before the 1993 formation of the American Academy happened. But money crept in. And it became quickly apparent that if you can make a lot of money on one contract, you can make more on two. And then on three, If you go to the foundation of where did MCARE come from, well, that was a company run by the 1981 president of ASAP, Leonard Briggs, who sold the company out, I think it was in 1996, made $40 million for selling to Laidlaw the ability to make 20% off of every working physician. Laidlaw took the company and then acquired another group and acquired another group and and expanded the model. Same thing, Team Health started with an amalgamation of smaller regional groups held by one or two individuals that were making money off their docs. They sold out at a profit. Team Health takes it in. And so we're seeing growth and consolidation. Physicians started it. It wasn't like the big bad industry came in and and said, we're going to do it. Physicians started making money off their colleagues, started doing it in a a larger scale, and then sold out to lay interest, which saw the opportunity for more, more profit by taking us over and running it as a business. So it's, it's a fairly simple tale. How did it happen in the specialty? Well, the leadership changed the bylaws. They shut down debate. You couldn't talk about the stuff at the meetings. People would write letters to the editor of Annals of Emergency Medicine and complain about it, and they actually shut that off. They said, we're not going to publish any more letters on this. This is an issue that's not fitting for an academic journal. Yet it was practitioners, not academicians, crying out for some help we're getting ripped off. There there are articles that are entitled, Entrepreneurism in Emergency Medicine. And there's one that's called Feudalism in Emergency Medicine. That was an editorial in the American Journal of Emergency, a feudalistic system, where basically, you know, you're the surf and the people up top are exploiting you. You're working the fields and somebody's making a lot of money off of you. That was what was in 1983, 10 years before the academy formed. So it was a recognized issue. The rank and file were suppressed. The leadership of the specialty said, you know, we can't interfere in this. We can't intervene in this. This is just the way it is. Corporate practice is part of the fabric of emergency medicine. Until the formation of the academy, there was absolutely no resistance to it other than the occasional person who would try to write a letter or something like that. And then they were getting shot down. The book, The Rape, actually reinvigorated the original spirit of the founders of emergency medicine, that the doctors should be in control. There's nothing wrong with management, okay? We're pushing management through the A.M. Physician Group. You should run your practice as professionally as you can. You should hire management. We think you should. You shouldn't do it as a mom and pop shop, because then you're going to get taken over. You're not going to run your business as well. The trouble is is that management controls the emergency physician. They determine what you're going to get paid. You're the one that has the trade. You're the master. You are the one that's at the bedside, who's caring for the patient, who's taking the risk if that patient dies, you know, of the emotional costs or being sued by that patient. You should own your practice. You should be at the top of the food chain and hire people to help you run your business.
1: I think that brings us to a nice transition into talking about the AAM Physician Group and how that is trying to change things. Can you tell us a bit more about the group?
2: Essentially, the Academy's been pushing physician ownership for a long time. We had talked about getting more into the actual marketplace per se, but there were a lot of physician-owned groups out there that were doing pretty well. The tipping point was when those groups, which were top-heavy, were the senior docs sold the future. When EMA of New Jersey sold to MCARE for $370 million, that meant that those senior docs got all that money, and then the residents that are listening to this got to pay that $370 million back plus MCARE's 20% profit level. Physician-owned group selling out, we said, you know, we were filing lawsuits. We've been successful in a couple, preventing corporate takeovers, writing letter to hospital administrators. We've had some fairly incredible successes beating back in certain areas. But when the physician group started selling out, we said, ah, we've, got to, we've got to do something different. It's a very simple principle. This is to help the physician-owned group compete against MCARE, Team Health, the big groups, with the C-suite to say we can run our practice exactly like they can. We have the metrics. We have the data feeds. We are able to run the CD in a manner that the big groups claim that they can do, and we have physician ownership. To be part of it, the physician group has to agree to follow the AM principles that we laid out, one of which is transparency, that you get to see what's built and paid in your name. So you don't feel ripped off. So you can work there and feel, hey, I'm not getting taken advantage of. I know exactly what's happening here. Another one is an early partnership. You actually get to become an equal in the practice after a three-year period. And then the other typical stuff with due process, the uh, restrictive covenants, all the things that you would see in the Mr. Mississippi. Create a fair practice environment. This group comes. They get business support to keep them in operation to protect their contract versus the big guys. And they follow the AAM principles and they get to use the a a m name to advertise. We are still a pure name out there when somebody hears a a m they think of physician ownership, fairness, you know treating each other as professionals so so far, we're in our first year we you know we have three groups, n- nine sites, three hundred thousand some visits. It's gone well. we've been really been able to help the groups that we're working with we're exploring it with a lot of others. We're trying to create a new option out there that You as a a small business in an individual hospital, you have all the backup of a powerful national group that can give you those economies of scale, give you the ability to show to the people that control the contract, the CEOs and the CMOs, that we are running this just like anybody else can. And actually, I believe we're doing it better because the group that we're partnered with, PSR, Physician Staffing Resources, they've been in this business for a long time. They do seventy other groups outside, physician owned groups outside of the AM physician group, and you're talking five million visits there. They know the business, they know how to run a practice efficiently, they know how to interface with the C suite. We've had a lot of success already. And it's it's AM getting into the game of actually ensuring the continuation of current groups and we're looking to plan to start new groups as well to take over contracts and put like minded board certified docs into a practice situation with full support. It's not hard. We just need the doctors to say, hey, we want to do this. We want to be owners. And then you got to put the work in. you know, you got to be willing to do the administrative side of your practice, to run your business, to go to the staff meetings, to interface, to pay people, to be there at the quality meetings, get representation on the hospital board, hospital committees. So it requires a little bit more work, but it ensures your future. And then you don't have the 20% off the top, which is even better. You'll make more money to boot you'll feel safer in your practice.
1: Well, it seems like a great option and something that I hope we'll continue to see grow. And as more of our residents graduate into practice, we'll hopefully have more ways where they can potentially join groups that are part of the AAMPG. I do want to return for just a moment to talking about our students and the residencies. You had mentioned SUMA, which is a huge issue right now. I'd be very interested to hear your perspective on that, as I think many of our listeners would as well.
2: SUMA is just a completely tragic situation that the residency program, I know it's under appeal right now, but that's not coming back. The violations that the ACGME found there, they're not remediable. I hope those residents, the first- and second-year residents who aren't going to be able to finish there, are already looking for spots because I think there's a 0% chance that that appeal is going to succeed because the report is just devastating. this This should not have happened. Most of us would like to think that education is sacred, that we shouldn't mess with the educational program, that this is the future of the specialty. This is a residency that was in place. The group was there for 40 years. I think the residency has been there for like 36 years or something like that. Longstanding, solid educational program, important to the community because we know that if your community is better when you have a residency program there because a lot of people stay in that community and practice there. And it happened for business reasons. Again, a profit stream. USAX just took on a capital partner, Welsh Carson, Anderson, and Stowe. They got a lot of money to get more and more contracts, to pay senior docs, to become part of USACS, to get that profit stream, to build this company. They're looking everywhere. A lot of academic people didn't think this would happen, but they're looking in academic programs. USACS is based out of Ohio. They knew it was a potentially profitable site for them to come in there and make some money. And there was a contract negotiation that stalled The USAC side is, well, we had to come in as saviors because the SEA docs, their contract was expiring 1231. They didn't have a contract. They were all going to leave on January 1st. That's malarkey. There's no way those doctors would have walked out just because they didn't have a contract. We've all worked at places where there was no contract. The nurses don't have an active contract. Teachers stay on. They don't have a contract. Doctors aren't going to walk out of a hospital and abandon it and abandon the residents. So I don't accept that rationale. But for business reasons, USAC said, yes, we'll take over these five contracts. Now, again, the original Constitution bylaws of ASEP said you shouldn't be doing that stuff. Well, we didn't actually steal it. We had to save the deal. So whatever it is, this is an academic site that is no longer going to be an academic site. If you're a student and you're looking for a residency position, it's say, like, who could that happen to me? Or if you're in your current residency, could that happen to me? I would say all bets are off if you're in a site that has a lucrative contract. If your residency is in a community hospital that does a pretty good business, you're vulnerable. Somebody's looking for your contract because the companies have to grow by acquisition. They need more EDs to make more money because you can't continually make more and more money out of each emergency department. You you can't keep having what's called same-store growth. You need to grow by acquisition. I'm at Temple, the largest Medicaid provider in Pennsylvania. Nobody's going to swoop in there and try to make a profit. There is no profit to be held. But on the other hand, you can look around at the different residencies. There are some fairly lucrative arrangements, good deals, good payer mixes, uh, insured patient populations, and they're at risk. Hopefully, the leadership of that program, they've got a good handle on their contract. You can explore, like, well, so what do you do? How do the emergency assistance participate in a greater hospital? Are you on the boards? Who do you know? You can ask a question. How do we know this contract isn't going to be taken over like Sumo was? It shows you're savvy. Like, hey, you're actually following current events. That program director should be willing to answer that question. If a program director hasn't thought about that question, I would say, whoa, how did you miss that? That was a devastating event for the specialty of emergency medicine. You figure there's 10 students out there that couldn't get an emergency medicine spot because of that issue, that they didn't match in emergency medicine just across the board. That's the way it is. There's 10 people out there. Their careers are now put on hold, and that's what happened just on Friday.
1: Not to mention all of the residents who are currently training there and are in limbo trying to find a new place to go. I mean, I can't even imagine yeah. being halfway through my residency and then having to start all over and move. And if you have a house or a family, it's it's not yes. a simple situation. And then not to mention not knowing if you're going to be able to finish your training.
2: On that note, I think those residents will be okay. The specialty will rally around them and get them spots. But, of course, like you said, having to move or this is a community I want to be part of. A lot of people choose a residency because that's where they want to live. So it's tough. But I think they'll all get spots. There have been programs that close for other reasons in the past, not business reasons, accreditation issues. And the community does rally around and provide them. But it's still, like you said, they signed on for what they knew was a great residency, and now it's gone.
1: Yeah, I think these are all such important issues for all of us to be aware of. Just for one last topic, and then we'll kind of summarize what we talked about today. I want students who are listening to this to be aware of it, but not to be dissuaded from choosing emergency medicine. What do you say to young people as they're thinking about entering our specialty and not sure whether there will be a career path for them going forward?
2: My son is currently a third-year resident in emergency medicine. I've thought about this. I have a personal stake. If you look at the burnout surveys, 38% of dermatologists are burned out. Every specialty has its issues. Emergency medicine, when it's done right, physicians working for one another by physicians is still one of the best specialties out there. And there are large opportunities still existing. There are numerous, very good groups. You get a skewed view because they don't have to advertise. They have an opening and... Once that's found out, they go and say to a couple of docs, hey, we know you're a good doc, come and work on it. They don't put their ads out there. And actually, you can just even look at the websites and the filings of these companies. Team Health identifies like 2,600 of the 5,000 EDs as their target. The whole industry has less than half of those. So there are still a lot of good positions. And there's good employed positions where you go, and it's not a great payer mix, but you get paid well. You make a good hourly rate. You're employed, and you're kind of subsidized by the hospital. So there still is a huge number of very good spots out there. This is one of the few specialties that there's active resistance of the corporate tide. The hospitalists are toast. They're gone. They don't have an AAM in their specialty. They're all being sucked up by corporate groups. Anesthesia, they're starting to go. They're a little bit late to the game. Every specialty has its own issue. Like I said, my son went into it, and I think he's got a bright future. Obviously, he was smart. He listened to me. He took a job <laughs> where he's not going to feel exploited. You got AEM members, resident members. They are more informed than those that aren't. They know that to look for the job that they're going to be able to stay in long term. There are certain areas of the country where it's a little tighter. You've got to really dig hard to find those good groups. And like I said, you know, sometimes it's all word of mouth that happens. But EM is still a great specialty. We have to continue to fight these issues. Across the board, more and more doctors and all specialties are being employed. They're losing some of their autonomy. EM, fortunately, at least has the academy that's actually active in the fight and trying to reverse the tide with things like the AAM Physician Group.
1: There you have it, and thank you so much, Dr. McNamara, for being here with us today and for everything you've done for our specialty and for AAM. I'm certainly very excited about the AAM Physician Group and something that we'll be keeping an eye on. For our listeners, thanks for tuning in, and please take the time to learn more about this. You just got a great overview from an expert in this area, but if you want more resources, both the AAEM and RSA websites have resources to help with your learning about this. A few important cases that Dr. McNamara mentioned today. Certainly keep paying attention to what's going on right now with the SUMA situation and with the Wanda Cruz case. Taking a minute to consider reading The Rape of Emergency Medicine, which, as he mentioned, is available for free on the AAEM website. He's also published papers on this topic that you can read. And then there was a 60 Minutes on the cost of admission that's also worth listening to. So thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. And uh, we look forward to having you back on our next
0: podcast. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aemrsa.com. Org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine students and residents.